Part three, chapter seven and eight of Doctor Doolittle's Post Office. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Doctor Doolittle's Post Office by Hugh Lofting. Part three, chapter seven. Tutu's story. All the animals had now told a story except Tutu the owl and the pushmi polyu, and the following night, a Friday, it was agreed that they should toss a coin, the doctor's penny that had a hole through it to see which of these two should tell a tale. If the penny came down heads, it was to be the pushmi-polyu, and if it came down tails, it was to be Tutu's turn. The doctor spanned the penny, and it came down tails. All right, said Tutu. Ooh, then that makes it my turn, I suppose. I will tell you the story of the time, ooh, the only time in my life, that I was taken for a fairy. Fancy me as a fairy chuckled the little round owl well this is how it happened who one october day towards evening i was wandering through the woods there was a wintry tang in the air and the small furred animals were busy among the dry rustly leaves gathering nuts and seeds for food against the coming of the snow i was out after shrew mice myself a delicacy i was extremely fond of at that time and while they were busy foraging they made easy hunting in my travels through the woods i heard children's voices and the barking of a dog usually i would have gone further into the forest away from such sounds but in my young days i was a curious bird and my curiosity often led me into many adventures so instead of flying away i went towards the noises i heard moving cautiously from tree to tree so that i could see without being seen presently i came upon a children's picnic several boys and girls having supper in a grove of oak trees one boy much larger than the rest was teasing a dog and two other children a small girl and a small boy were objecting to his cruelty and begging him to stop the bully wouldn't stop and soon the small boy and girl set upon him with their fists and feet and gave him quite a fine drubbing which greatly surprised him the dog then ran off home and presently the small boy and girl i found out afterwards they were brother and sister wandered off from the rest of the picnicking party to look for mushrooms i had admired their spirit greatly in punishing a boy so much bigger than they were and when they wandered off by themselves again out of curiosity i followed them well they travelled quite a distance for such small folk and presently the sun set and darkness began to creep over the woods then the children thought to join their friends again and started back but being poor woodsmen they took the wrong direction it grew darker still of course as time went on and soon the youngsters were tumbling and stumbling over roots they could not see and getting pretty thoroughly lost and tired all this time i was following them secretly and noiselessly overhead at last the children sat down and the little girl said willie we're lost whatever shall we do night is coming on and i'm so afraid of the dark so am i said the boy ever since aunt emily told us that spooky story of the bogey in the cupboard i've been scared to death of the dark well you could have knocked me down with a feather of course you must realize it was the first time i had ever heard of anyone's being afraid of the dark it sounds ridiculous enough to all of you i suppose but to me who had always preferred the cool calm darkness to the glaring vulgar daylight it seemed then an almost unbelievable thing that anyone could be afraid merely because the sun had gone to bed now some people have an idea that bats and owls can see in the dark because we have some peculiar kind of eyes it's not so peculiar ears we have 
but not eyes. We can see in the dark because we practice it. It's all a matter of practice, the same as the piano or anything else. We get up when other people go to bed and go to bed when other people get up because we prefer the dark and you'd be surprised how much nicer it is when you get used to it. Of course, we owls are specially trained by our mothers and fathers to see on very dark nights when we are quite young. So it comes easier to us. But anybody can do it, to a certain extent, if they only practice. Well, to return to the children. There they were, all fussed and worried and scared, sitting on the ground, weeping and wondering what they could do. Then, remembering the dog and knowing they were kind to animals, I thought I would try to help them. So I popped across into the tree over their heads, and said in the kindliest, gentlest sort of voice, To wit, to woo! Which means in our language, as you know, It's a fine night, how are you? Then you should have seen those poor children jump. Ugh! says the little girl, clutching her brother round the neck. What was that? A spook! I don't know, says the little boy. Gosh, but I'm scared. Isn't the dark awful? Then I made two or three more attempts to comfort them, talking kindly to them in our language. But they only grew scareder and scareder. First they thought I was a bogey, and then an ogre, and then a giant of the forest. Me, whom they could put in their pockets. Golly, but these human creatures do bring up their children in awful ignorance. If there ever was a bogey or a giant or an ogre, in the forest or out of it, I've yet to see one. Then I thought that maybe if I went off through the woods, to witting and to hooing all the way, they would follow me, and I could then lead them out of the forest and show them the way home. So I tried it, but they didn't follow me, the stupid little beggars, thinking I was a witch or some evil nonsense of that kind. And all I got from my to-witting and to-hooing all over the place was to wake up another owl some distance off, who thought I was calling to him. So, since I wasn't doing the children any good, I went off to look up this other owl and see if he had any ideas to suggest. I found him sitting at the stump of a hollow birch, rubbing his eyes, having just got out of bed. "'Good evening,' says I. "'It's a fine night.' "'It is,' says he. "'Only it's not dark enough. What were you making all that racket over there for just now?' waking a fellow out of his sleep before it's got properly dark. "'I'm sorry,' I said, "'but there's a couple of children over in the hollow there who've got lost. The little silly duffers are sitting on the ground bawling because the daylight's gone and they don't know what to do.' "'My gracious,' says he, "'what a quaint notion. Why don't you lead them out of the woods? They'd probably live over in one of those farms near the crossroads.' "'I've tried,' I said, "'but they're so scared they won't follow me.' They don't like my voice or something. They take me for a wicked ogre and all that sort of rot. Well, says he, then you'll have to give an imitation of some other kind of creature, one they're not scared of. Are you any good at imitations? Can you bark like a dog? No, I said, but I can make a noise like a cat. I learned that from an American catbird that lived in a cage in the stable where I spent last summer. Fine, says he, try that and see what happens. So I went back to the children and found them weeping harder than ever. Then, keeping myself well hidden down near the ground among the bushes, I went, Meow! Meow! Real cat-like hoo-hoo! Oh, Willie, says the little girl to her brother, we're saved! Saved, mark you, when neither of the boobies was in the slightest danger. We're saved, says she. There's Tuffy, our cat, come for us. She'll show us the way home. Cats can always find their way home, can't they, Willie? Let's follow her. <laughs> for a moment, Tutu's plump sides shook with silent laughter as he recalled the scene he was describing. Then, said he, I went a little further off, 
still taking great care that I shouldn't be seen, and I meowed again. There she is, said the little girl. She's calling to us. Come along, Willie. Well, in that way, keeping ahead of them and calling like a cat, I finally led the children right out of the woods. They did a good deal of stumbling, and the girl's long hair often got caught in the bushes, but I always waited for them if they were lagging behind. At last, when we gained the open fields, we saw three houses on the skyline, and the middle one was all lighted up, and people with lanterns were running around it hunting in all directions. When I had brought the children right up to this house, their mother and father made a tremendous fuss, weeping over them, as though they had been saved from some terrible danger. In my opinion, grown-up humans are even more stupid than the young ones. You'd think, from the way the mother and father carried on, that those children had been wrecked on a desert island or something, instead of spending a couple of hours in the pleasant woods. <laughs> However did you find your way, Willie? asked the mother, wiping away her tears and smiling all over. Tuffy brought us home, says the little girl. She came out after us and led us here by going ahead of us and meowing. Tuffy, says the mother, puzzled. Why, the cat's asleep in the parlour in front of the fire. Been there all evening. Well, it was some cat, says the boy. He must be right around here somewhere, because he led us almost up to the door. Then the father swings his lantern around, looking for a cat, and before I had time to hop away, he throws the light full on me, sitting on a sage-bush. Why, it's an owl, cries the little girl. Meow, says I, just to show off. To wit, to who? Meow, meow. And with a farewell flip of the wing, I disappeared into the night over the barn roof. But as I left, I heard the little girl saying in tremendous excitement, Oh, mother, a fairy! It was a fairy that brought us home. It must have been, disguised as an owl. At last, at last I've seen a fairy. Well, hoo-hoo, that's the first and last time I ever expect to be taken for a fairy. But I got to know those children quite well. They were a real nice couple of kiddies, even if the little girl did keep on insisting that I was a fairy in disguise. I used to hang around their barn at night, looking for mice and rats, but if those youngsters ever caught sight of me, they'd follow me everywhere. After bringing them safely home that evening, I could have led them across the Sahara Desert and they'd follow, certain in their minds that I was the best of all good fairies and would keep them out of harm. They used to bring me mutton chops and shrimps and all the best titbits from their parents' table, and I lived like a fighting cock, got so fat and lazy I couldn't have caught a mouse on crutches. They were never afraid of the dark again, because, you see, as I said to the doctor one day, when we were talking over the multiplication tables and other philosophy, fear is usually ignorance. Once you know a thing, you're no longer afraid of it, and those youngsters got to know the dark, and then they saw, of course, that it was just as harmless as the day. I used to take them out into the woods at night and across the hills, and they got to love it, like the adventure, you know. And thinking it would be a good thing, if some humans, anyway, had sense enough to travel without sunlight, I taught them how to see in the dark. They soon got onto it, when they saw how I always shaded my eyes in the light of a lantern, so as not to get the habit of strong light. Well, those young ones became real expert, not so good as an owl or a bat, of course, but quite good at seeing in the dark for anyone who had not been brought up that way. It came in handy for them, too. That part of the country got flooded one springtime in the middle of the night, and there wasn't a dry match or a light to be had anywhere. Then those children, who had travelled all that country scores of times in the dark with me, saved a great many lives. They acted as guides, you understand, and took the people to safety, because they knew how to use their eyes, and the others didn't. Tutu yawned and blinked up sleepily at the lantern hanging above his head. 
seeing in the dark he ended Ooh, it's all a matter of practice same as the piano or anything else chapter eight the push me pull you story and now it came at last to the push me pull you's turn for a story he was very shy and modest and when the animals asked him the following night he said in his very well-bred manner i'm terribly sorry to disappoint you but i'm afraid i don't know any stories at least none good enough to entertain you with oh come on push said jip don't be so bashful we've all told one you don't mean to say you've lived all your life in the african jungle without seeing any adventures there must be lots of yarns you could tell us but i've mostly led such a quiet life you see said the push me pull you our people have always kept very much to themselves we mind our own business and don't like getting mixed up in scandals and rows and adventures oh but just think a minute said dab dab something will come to you don't pester him she whispered to the others just leave him alone and let him think he's got two heads to think with you know something will come to him but don't get him embarrassed whatever you do for a moment or two the push me pull you pawed the deck of the veranda with his dainty hoofs as if wrapped in deep thought then looking up with one of his heads he began speaking in a quiet voice while the other coughed apologetically below the level of the tea-table yeah, this isn't much of a story not really but perhaps it will serve to pass the time i will tell you about the batamoshi ostrich hunters you must know then that the black peoples have various methods of hunting wild animals and the way they go about it depends on the kind of animal they mean to hunt for example if they want giraffes they dig deep holes and cover them up with light boughs and grass next they wait until the giraffe comes along and walks over the hole and falls in then they run up and catch him for certain kinds of rather stupid deer they make a little screen of branches and leaves about the size of a man and the hunter holding the screen in front of him like a shield creeps slowly forward until he is close to the deer and then fires his spear or arrow of course the stupid deer thinks the moving leaves are just trees being swayed by the wind and takes very little notice if the hunter is careful to approach quietly enough they have various other dodges more or less underhanded and deceitful for getting game but the one invented by the batamoshi ostrich hunters was perhaps the meanest of them all briefly this was it ostriches you know usually go about in small herds like cattle and they're rather stupid you've heard the story about their sticking their heads in the sand when a man comes along thinking that because they can't see the man the man can't see them that doesn't speak very well for their intelligence does it no very well then now in the batamoshi country there wasn't much sand for the ostriches to stick their heads in which in a way was a good thing for them 
because there, when a man came along, they ran away instead, I suppose to look for sand. Anyhow, the running away saved their lives, so the hunters of Batamoshi had to think out some dodge of coming near enough to the ostriches to get among the herd and kill them, and the way they thought out was quite clever. As a matter of fact, I by chance came upon a group of these hunters in the woods one day, practicing their new trick. They had the skin of an ostrich, and were taking it in turns, putting it over their heads and trying to walk and look like a real ostrich, holding up the long neck with a stick. Keeping myself concealed, I watched them and saw at once what their game was. They meant to disguise themselves as ostriches, walk among the herd, and kill them with axes which they kept hidden inside the skin. Now, the ostriches of those parts were great friends of mine, had been ever since they put the Batamoshi's tennis court out of business. The chief of the tribe, some years before, finding a beautiful meadow of elephant grass, which happened to be my favorite grazing ground, had the fine hay all burnt off and made the place into a tennis court. He had seen white men playing that game and thought he'd like to play it too. But the ostriches took the tennis balls for apples and ate them. You know, they're dreadfully unparticular about their food. Yes, they used to sneak around in the jungles on the edge of the tennis court, and whenever a ball was knocked out of the court, they'd run off with it and swallow it. By eating up all the chief's tennis balls in this way, they put the tennis court out of business, and my beautiful grazing ground soon grew its long grass again, and I came back to it. That is how the ostriches happened to be friends of mine. So, seeing they were threatened by a secret danger, I went off and told the leader of the herd about it. He was frightfully stupid, and I had the hardest work getting it into his head. Now, remember, I said as I was leaving, you can easily tell the hunter when he comes among the herd from the color and shape of his legs. Ostrich's legs are a sort of gray, as you see from your own, and the hunter's legs are black and thicker. You see, the skin which the Batamoshis were going to use did not cover the hunter's legs. Now, I said, you must tell all your birds when they see a black-legged ostrich trying to make friends with them to set on him and give him a good hiding. That will teach the Batamoshi hunters a lesson. Well, you'd think after that... Everything should have gone smoothly. But I had not counted on the extraordinary stupidity of ostriches. The leader, going home that night, stepped into some marshy, boggy places and got his stupid long legs all over black mud, caked with it, thick. Then, before he went to bed, he gave all the ostriches the careful instructions which I had given to him. 
The next morning he was late in getting up, and the herd was out ahead of him, feeding in a pleasant place on the hillside. Then that numbskull of a leader, the stupidest cock ostrich of them all, without bothering to brush the black mud off his legs which he had stepped into the night before, comes stalking out into the open space like a king, expecting a grand reception. And he got a grand reception, too, the ignoramus. As soon as the others saw his black legs, they passed the word around quickly, and at a given signal they set on the poor leader and nearly beat the life out of him. The Batamoshis, who had not yet appeared at all, arrived upon the scene at this moment, and the silly ostriches were so busy beating their leader, whom they took for a hunter in disguise, that the black men came right up to them and would have caught the whole lot if I hadn't shouted in time to warn them of their danger. So after that, of course, I saw that if I wanted to save my good but foolish friends from destruction, I had better do something on my own account. And this was what I thought I'd do. When the Batamoshi hunters were asleep, I would go and take that ostrich skin, the only one they had, away from them, and that would be the end of their grand new hunting trick. So, in the dead of night, I crept out of the jungle and came to the place where the hunters' huts were. I had to come up from the leeward side because I didn't want to have the dogs get my scent on the wind. I was more afraid of the hunters' dogs, you see, than I was of the hunters themselves. From the men I could escape quite easily, being much swifter than they were. But dogs, with their sense of smell, are much harder to get away from, even when you can reach the cover of the jungle. Well then, coming up from the leeward side, I started searching around the huts for the ostrich skin. At first, I couldn't find it anywhere, and I began to think they must have hidden it someplace. Now, the Batamoshis, like a good many black races, when they go to bed for the night, always leave one of their number outside the huts to watch and keep guard. I could see this night watchman at the end of the row of huts, and of course I was careful not to let him see me. But after spending some time hunting for this ostrich skin, I noticed that the watchman had not moved at all, but stayed in the same place, squatting on a stool. Then I guessed he had probably fallen asleep. So I moved closer and I found, to my horror, that he was wearing the ostrich skin as a blanket, for the night was cool. How to get it without waking him was now the problem. On tiptoe, hardly breathing, I went up and began to draw it gently off his shoulders, but the wretched man had tucked part of it in under him, and I couldn't get it free while he was sitting down. Then I was in despair, and I almost gave up. But thinking of the fate that surely awaited my poor foolish friends if I didn't get that skin, 
I decided on desperate measures. Suddenly and swiftly, I jabbed the watchman in a tinder spot with one of my horns. With an ouch, you could hear a mile off. He sprang in the air. Then, snatching the bird skin from under him, I sped off into the jungle while the Batamoshis, their wives, the dogs, and the whole village woke up in an uproar and came after me like a pack of wolves. Well, the pushmi polyu sighed as he balanced his graceful body to the slight rolling of the houseboat. I hope never again to have such a race for my life as I had that night. Cold shivers run down my spine still whenever I think of it. The barking of the dogs and the shouting of the men and the shrieking of the women and the crashing of the underbrush as my pursuers came tearing through the jungle hot upon my trail. It was a river that saved me. The rainy season was on, and the streams were in flood. Panting with terror and fatigue, I reached the bank of a swirling torrent. It was fully twenty-five feet wide. The water was simply raging down it. To try and swim it would be madness. Looking backward, I could see and hear my pursuers close upon my heels, and again I had to take desperate measures, drawing back a little to get space for a run, and still clutching that wretched ostrich skin firmly in my mouth. I rushed at the river at full speed and leaped, as I have never leaped in my life, clear across to the further bank, and as I came down in a heap, I realized I had only just been in time, for my enemies had already come up to the river on the side that I had left. Shaking their fists at me in the moonlight, they were trying to find a way to get across to me. The dogs, eagerest of all, tried some of them to swim. The swift and raging water swept them down the stream like corks, and the hunters were afraid to follow their example. With a thrill of triumph, I dropped the precious ostrich skin before their very eyes into the swirling river, where it quickly disappeared from view. A howl of rage went up from the Batamoshis. Then I did something I've been sorry for all my life. You know how my people have always insisted on good manners and politeness. Well, I blush to recall it. In the excitement of the moment, I stuck out both my tongues at the baffled foe across the river. There was no excuse for it. There never is for deliberate rudeness. But it was only moonlight, and I trust the Batamoshis didn't see it. Well, though I was safe for the present, my troubles were not over by any means. For some time, the Batamoshis now left the ostriches alone and turned their whole attention to hunting me. They badgered my life out. As soon as I had moved from one part of the country to get away from their pestering, they'd find out where I was and pursue me there. They laid traps for me. They set pitfalls. They sent the dogs after me, and although I managed for a whole year to keep away from them, the constant strain was very wearing.
Now, the Batamoshis, like most savage peoples, are very superstitious, and they are terribly afraid, in the way that Tutu was speaking of last night, of anything they can't understand. Nearly everything they can't understand, they think, is a devil. Well, after I had been hunted and worried for a long time, I thought I would take a leaf out of their own book, so to speak, and play something like the same trick on them as they had tried to play on the ostriches. With this idea in mind, I set about finding some means to disguise myself. One day, passing by a tree, I found a skin of a wild ox spread out by some huntsman to dry. This I decided was just the thing I wanted. I pulled it down, and lowering one of my heads, I laid one pair of my horns flat upon my back, like this, and drew the cowhide over myself so that only one of my heads could be seen. It changed my appearance completely. Moving through the long grass, I looked like some ordinary kind of deer. So, disguised in this manner, I sauntered out into an open meadow and grazed around till my precious Batamoshis should appear, which they very shortly did. I saw them, though they didn't know it, creeping about among the trees on an edge of the meadow, trying to get near without scaring me. Now, their method of hunting small deer is this. They get up into a tree and lie along a lower branch, keeping very still. And when the deer passes under the tree, they drop down upon his hindquarters and fell him to the ground. So presently, picking out the tree where I had seen the chief himself go and hide, I browsed along underneath it, pretending I suspected nothing at all. Then, when the chief dropped on what he thought was my hindquarters, I struck upward with my other horns, hidden under the cowhide, and gave him a jab he will remember the rest of his days. With a howl of superstitious fright, he called out to his men that he had been struck by the devil, and they all ran across the country like wildfire, and I was never hunted or bothered by them again. Everybody had now told the tale, and the Arctic Monthly Prize Story Competition was declared closed. The first number of the first Animals magazine ever printed was, shortly after that, issued and circulated by Swallow Mail to the inhabitants of the frozen north. It was a great success. Letters of thanks and votes on the competition began pouring in from seals and sea lions and caribou and all manner of polar creatures. Tutu, the mathematician, became editor. Dab-Dab ran the Mother's and Baby's page, while Gub-Gub wrote the gardening notes and the pure foods column. And the Arctic Monthly continued to bring happiness to homes and dens and icebergs as long as the doctor's post office existed. End of Part 3